Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 25 through to verse 53 of Luke chapter 24. The title of today's sermon, The Resurrected Flesh and Bones of Jesus Himself. The verses of focus, you'll see there, verses 36 through 43. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy 
and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So here's a question for you. Has anyone here ever seen a ghost? Oh. Does anyone here believe in ghosts? Do you believe that ghosts are real? Webster's 1828 dictionary, this word apparition, it's kind of a frightening sounding word, isn't it? It's a ghost, it's a specter, it is a visible spirit. Ghost stories abound throughout history, and many stories and plays and movies include these disembodied spirits as part of the plot. From the first century A.D. plays of Seneca, and a great influence on Shakespeare, all the way up to Shakespeare's ghost of Julius Caesar, and you know Shakespeare used ghosts a lot in his plays. To modern Ghostbusters, we have those kinds of funny movies with the green slime. This world's cultural tides, wherever you go, and stories overflow with the ghosts and spirits and apparitions. But what about ghosts in the Bible? Does anyone think of a ghost in the Bible? Well, here's a ghost story from the Bible. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. Samuel's a good guy. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. That was good. He got rid of the witches. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So uh, Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So Saul's not a good guy. He's got an army coming against him and all of Israel. And he's not getting any answers from God. So what does he do? He said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. There's the rules for everyone else except for Saul, right? And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor, the witch of Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. So he sneaks in there because he's breaking his own rules. And he said, please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Saul's not a good guy. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? So the witch is more righteous than Saul. (laughs) And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. 
And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, "Why why, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. So, there's a ghost story in the Bible for you. Matthew Henry said, If there were really no spirits or apparitions of spirits, as by this and other instances it is plain that the disciples did believe that there were, This had been a proper time for Christ to have undeceived them by telling them there's no such thing. But he seems to take it for granted that there have been and may be apparitions of spirits, else what need was there of so much pains to prove to them that he was not one of those spirits. There were many heretics in the primitive times, atheists I rather think they were, who said that Christ had never any substantial body, but that it was a mere phantasm which was neither really born nor truly suffered. Such wild notions as these we are told the Valentinians and Manichees had, and the followers of Simon Magus, they were called Dokatai and Phantisiastai. Blessed be God, these heresies have long since been buried, and we know and are sure that Jesus Christ was no spirit or apparition, but had a true and real body even after his resurrection. So this is the main focus of what happens here in this resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. When we see the disciples terrified, supposing Jesus to be such a disembodied spirit, it really shouldn't be a big surprise to us. Their past experience and knowledge had created in their minds a grid of interpretation that did not allow them to see what the text calls Jesus himself, not just Jesus, Jesus himself as flesh and bones. Without faith, they could only see him as a spirit. That's the only way they could interpret this event. Now, do you have any inaccurate prior beliefs or knowledge that keep you from seeing, Je- from seeing Jesus for who he really is? Are we perceiving him with Bible knowledge according to faith from God? Do you need to handle Him and see Him anew today in your life? Do you need more heavenly evidence of Christ eating and drinking with you today? Also, think about this. What happens when we don't believe accurately about Christ Himself, the person of Christ? See, there are heresies of all kinds this text focuses on, is one of the major texts focusing on the heresies about Christ's person. We talk a lot about the heresies regarding Christ's works, 
Christ's reign. Where is he? What is he doing? Christ's works. But in today's text, we see Christ's person on display. And we'll ponder how will this, how does this impact the lives that we live? Understanding incarnational theology, it impacts our motives. It impacts our goals for our own lives. Understanding God's goals, God's motives for this world impacts our goals, our motives for this world, and the ethics we embrace. Into what spheres is Christ our King extending His righteousness? All the spheres touched by His person is the answer. So these things are important to us and the the seeds of heresy impact all of life. So today, the title, The Resurrected Flesh and Bones of Jesus Himself. First, the setting. We'll recall where they are. And that then Jesus Himself appears and He speaks peace to them. The disciples, they're initially, they're terrified, supposing that they've seen a ghost. So that's where we are in Jerusalem. They're, they're now seeing a ghost, is what they think. And then Jesus questions them about their fears and doubts, brings their fears and doubts to mind with his question, and says, handle me and see. How tender that is. And, and they start to transition. We see they're still having unbelief in verse 41, yet it's this kind of end-stage unbelief with joy and marveling as they're transitioning into faith in the resurrected incarnation body of their Lord. And then finally, do you have anything to eat? And Jesus eats in their presence. And then, of course, uh, some ideas to consider and some questions for ourselves and for our, our own lives. So verse 33 to 36a the setting. They rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, so Cleopas and the other Emmaus road disciple, they just completed retelling the Emmaus story, which we've looked at. Right after they had heard from the eleven, telling their story of Christ resurrected, including that Christ had appeared to Simon Peter. Remember now that Christ, we've already read this, had handled the bread. He had broken it and he had given it to the two Emmaus disciples. Not something you typically expect from a spirit. Christ's physical body had broken physical bread in their presence. Yet, he had vanished suddenly from their sight, certainly suggesting a ghost-like existence, yes? So they must have been wondering about his resurrection existence. Who is this Jesus? What is going on? Is he spirit only or fully man with soul, flesh, and bones? Maybe they were even thinking about Samuel coming up out of the earth and wondering if something weird like that was going on. They must have been very curious. And it's worth noting, this is still on the first Christian Sabbath day. The first resurrection day is still when all this is taking place. Matthew Henry says, Five times Christ was seen the same day that he arose. By Mary Magdalene alone in the garden in John 20. By the women as they were going to tell the disciples in Matthew 28. By Peter alone 
by the two disciples going to Emmaus, and now at night by the eleven, of which we have an account in these verses and also in John chapter 20. So, there they are in Jerusalem. They're together. And Jesus comes in. He appears and he speaks peace to them. The text says, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. It's an exciting time. It's a very dynamic time. A lot of things are happening in this day. And Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. The text does not mention Christ arriving at the door, knocking and seeking entrance. How did Jesus get into that room? Did he appear supernaturally? Like he had supernaturally vanished at Emmaus? That's the most natural reading of this text, is that he appeared there supernaturally as he had disappeared supernaturally. So yes, this is flesh and bones, all man, fully man, resurrected. But he's got some unique powers now in this glorified body. Calvin says he does not indeed say that Christ, by his divine power, opened for himself the doors which were shut, but something of this sort is indirectly suggested by the phrase which he employs, Jesus stood. For how could our Lord suddenly, during the night, stand in the midst of them if he had not entered in a miraculous manner? So, there he is. And what does he do? He speaks to them. He immediately speaks to the assembled disciples and he says, peace to you. He doesn't say, hey, I found you, the guys who deserted me. He doesn't say that. (laughs) He says, peace to you. (laughs) So the manner of his arrival also would have been quite unsettling. So Jesus speaks peace to settle them. And also, recall Christ's disciples had deserted or denied him during his trials and crucifixion, except for John. His appearance to them would have been doubly unsettling in that way. Oh, he's here. Oh, I ran away. Matthew Henry says, this intimates in general that it was a kind visit which Christ now paid them, a visit of love and friendship. Though they had very unkindly deserted him and his sufferings, yet he takes the first opportunity of seeing them together, for he deals not with us as we deserve. Thus Christ would at the first word intimate to them that he did not come to quarrel with Peter for denying him and the rest for running away from him. No, he came peaceably to signify to them that he had forgiven them and that he was reconciled to them. It's a happy moment. The text says Jesus himself. That's worth noting. This phrase emphasizes the full humanity of Jesus Christ at this moment. He is not spirit only. He is 100% man. Heart, soul, mind, strength, flesh, and bones. All man. It doesn't just say his name. There's a Greek word there next to it that is translated himself. It's an extra word, an extra emphasis that it's all of Jesus who is there. So, they're afraid. They're terrified. They only have one way to interpret this. Must be a ghost. They were terrified and frightened and assumed, excuse me, and supposed they had seen a spirit. So, they yet to have full faith 
in the total resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And we've seen others, remember, on this same day who've gone through these similar types of things. The women who arrived didn't have the faith that they needed, right? The apostles, when they heard the story, they didn't have the faith that they needed. Peter kind of believed, but didn't have the faith he needed. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of these times, there's this process, this transition of growing in faith. We should take note of these things, right, when they're repeated. If it's just once in the word, that's enough. But especially this strong theme here of how we grow and what, what we go through when God grows our faith. So the first inclination here is to believe they're seeing a disembodied spirit rather than a fully resurrected human being. The first thing we experience when our faith is not big enough for the moment is we start making reality into some fantasy in our mind. We, we have to explain it in a way that fits with what we know and what we believe. And often, we get it wrong. This idea of Christ's body being brought back to life is impossible for them to conceive of or to believe at this, po- at this point in time. So Even though they had already heard it. The two disciples from Emmaus, that's what they'd been told. So instead of being filled with joy and gladness, they're terrified and frightened. How often do God's blessings terrify us because of our lack of knowledge and our lack of faith? Think of it. God comes to speak peace to you, to bless you in ways that you don't expect. And instead of rejoicing, first you're terrified. Bach says, Jesus' appearance startles and frightens the group. The disciples think they are seeing a spirit, a disembodied person. Their fear is understandable since the group does not initially recognize Jesus and they are not expecting another appearance. The disciples are not operating with expectations of the miraculous. So Jesus sees them and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? I mean, the victor stands before them great question, isn't it? Why are you troubled? I have taken care of everything. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So they're troubled. This is an inward commotion, a fear and a dread, a stirring inside their souls. It's the opposite of peace. He spoke peace to them. They didn't receive it. Instead, they're torn up inside. Troubled. What were their doubts? We know one for sure. They thought Jesus was a spirit. So they were doubting his, what I'm calling, total resurrection. Total resurrection. His entire humanity was resurrected. They doubted his body had been brought back to life. They doubted that the seen and unseen humanity of Jesus Christ had been brought back to life, united one person. They doubted that. I doubt they would have spoken it that way. But we know this is what they were struggling with. They thought he was a spirit. So he speaks to them in this moment. His lungs move air. Now, we do have to wonder, don't we, how do spirits speak to people? Right? You may have thought that. I certainly did. But this is no spirit. 
These are the lungs of Jesus himself moving air through the vocal cords of Jesus himself as Christ's mouth and tongue, which, we, which he will shortly use to eat with, shape the sound waves that travel through the shared air into their ears where sound becomes hearing. His questions begin to shake them out of their fear and doubts. We always have to first be aware of our fears and doubts before we can have them shaken loose. Matthew Henry says that many of the troublesome thoughts with which our minds are disquieted arise from our mistakes concerning Christ. They here thought that they had seen a spirit when they saw Christ and that put them into this fright. We forget that Christ is our elder brother and look upon him to be at as great a distance from us as the world of spirits is from this world and therewith we terrify ourselves. When Christ is by his spirit convincing and humbling us, when he is by his providence trying and converting us, we mistake him as if he designed our hurt and this troubles us. So you see how we human beings have many, many troubles in our lives because we don't understand who he is and what he is doing. So Christ tenderly in these verses to follow basically says, handle me and see. Handle me and see. Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Our Lord in his compassion and his tenderness, he knows his disciples have here in this moment been stretched beyond their faith. They are in that transition from doubt to faith And he comes to them in that tender transformation time and he helps them along. This is the work of any wise apologist. Handle me and see. Behold that it is myself. He alludes to his crucifixion, my hands and my feet. You see, this is the same body now glorified that had endured the cross. Not a stand-in, not a body double. He still has the marks of the cross upon his body. I think about this. I think we've pondered this together before, but this is a resurrected, glorified body. They didn't have, God didn't have to leave the scars on his hands and his feet or on his side. But he did. Matthew Henry says he shows them his body, particularly his hands and his feet, They saw that he had the shape and features and exact resemblance of their master. But is it not his ghost? No, says Christ. Behold my hands and my feet. You see, I have hands and feet. And therefore have a true body. You see, I can move these hands and feet. And therefore have a living body. And you see the marks of the nails in my hands and feet. And therefore it is my own body. The same that you saw crucified. And not a borrowed Jesus says to them, spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
Jesus explicitly declares here, brothers and sisters, that he is not just a spirit and that he is fully human in his resurrected body. Not just with his unseen humanity, but also with his visible humanity, both united together in himself. In what he says about himself, he says, myself. This is the body that belongs to the unseen humanity of Jesus, united in one glorified eternal man. Standing there with them. He appeals to their sight, to their touch. He says, behold, Matthew Henry references, he appeals to their sight, shows them his hands and his feet, which were pierced with the nails. Christ retained the marks of them in his glorified body, that they might be proofs that it was he himself. And he was willing that they should be seen. Afterwards, showed them to Thomas, for he's not ashamed of his sufferings for us. Little reason then have we to be ashamed of them or of ours for him. As he showed his wounds here to his disciples for the enforcing of his instructions to them, so he showed them to his father for the enforcing of his intercessions with him. He appears in heaven as a lamb that had been slain. This is our king. Handle me, he says. Matthew Henry says, he appeals to their touch, handle me and see. He would not let Mary Magdalene touch him at that time. But the disciples here are entrusted to do it, that they who were to preach his resurrection and to suffer for doing so might be themselves abundantly satisfied concerning it. He bade them handle him that they might be convinced that he was not a spirit. And so here we see the Holy Spirit of God mixing faith with evidence. This is the way that He brings faith to fruition in our lives. Christianity is never blind faith. Our great God in His kindness always accompanies faith with evidence. We do not believe because of the evidence. We see the evidence because we believe. What happens next? I mean, they've touched him. They've listened to him speak. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled. So they're not believing yet. They're having joy and they're marveling because something different is happening. So their transition from unbelief to faith is on display here. It's almost complete. The fear and dread are gone. The fear and the terror and the startled Those are gone, replaced with joy and marveling. This is what I'm calling the happy forms of unbelief as it is being replaced with faith. So it doesn't say the doubts are gone, but there's no mention of the fear at this point in time. So this is the transitioning. This is the new birth into belief. So Jesus goes on and eats in their presence. And here we have another example of the importance of eating, that the eating in front of his disciples would be the final proof. Like the eating when he revealed himself to them in Emmaus, continues to lift up before our eyes the importance in God's eyes 
of food and drink together in this world. Feasting, fasting, times of moderation, what we do with food and drink is oh so important to God. He said to them, have you any food here? Isn't that wonderful? This is, this is Jesus. They've spent these years with him. How many times have they heard him say, do we have any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. So Jesus himself, he goes on here, you can say to provide some final proof, but he's just going on to be human with them. That's why it's proof. It's not just proof. It's proof because that's what humans do. We eat when we're hungry. We like to eat. We enjoy eating. So they've seen his body. They've heard his voice. They've touched his body. They've seen and handled his cross wounds. Now he eats in front of them. There it is again. Eating. Matthew Henry says, he eats with them to show that he had a real and true body and that he was willing to converse freely and familiarly with his disciples as one friend with another. Peter lays a great stress upon this in Acts chapter 10. We did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. <clears throat> now, we don't know for sure that they ate with him here at this time, but it certainly is. There's other times we know that they ate with him. Broiled fish and honeycomb. Don't search for any symbolism. I mean, I mean you can if you want to, okay? But it's just what they had, right? It's, it's what was handy. Think upon the simplicity of this moment. It's so real. It's so down to earth. It's so human. Um, uh, We've got some, we some broiled fish and, and some honeycomb, right? Like you just go to the fridge and you pull something out. I got some leftover Cheez-Its and, and a couple of hot dogs. Will that do? Right? So this is what's happening here, and it's just beautiful. I mean, these people have just been scattered all over, and they're finally back together, and it's, 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 it's almost a miracle they have anything to eat at all. Like, these, these must have been some really good women, because if it had been probably up to the men, there wouldn't have been any honeycombs or broiled fish, probably. I don't know this for sure. But you, you get my take on this. This is, they're just, they're, they're just caught up in what's happening, and they have whatever food they had. And Jesus joins them. They shared it with him. Now, <laughs> so... Like, if I could make a movie of this moment, they would hand him the broiled fish, right? And, and they'd put some honeycomb there, and they'd go, and they'd be watching. And then they would see him pick it up. Or maybe, they, maybe he poured some honey on the fish, who knows? And take a bite and go, oh, he's eating, he's eating it, he's eating it, he's chewing it. He like, I think he likes it. And he's, you know, he looks at them and he smiles like, What's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> I, of course I'm human. I eat fish and honeycomb like I always did. Imagine that scene. You ever think that maybe in heaven the Lord will let us see some of these scenes and see what it was like? Isn't it glorious? He came back from the dead, the victory of history, the victor of history, the one deserving all praise and honor and glory and he chooses first to demonstrate his full humanity to them. He chews it, he swallows it, he enjoys it. Matthew Henry says, 
They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. The honeycomb perhaps was used as sauce to the broiled fish, for Canaan was a land flowing with honey. This was mean fare. Yet if it be the fare of the disciples, their master will fare as they do. Because in the kingdom of our father, they shall fare as he does, shall eat and drink with him in his kingdom. So praise be to God for the resurrected body, the resurrected humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our faith rests upon this historical reality, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ came in the flesh as a man in all of its form. Everything that means to be human, save sin. And that is revealed to us throughout his entire ministry in this world, pre-resurrection and post-resurrection. Now, he has some unique powers, it appears, after his resurrection. I don't remember him vanishing. There was that one time, I guess, where he went through the crowd in some miraculous way. He walked on water, that's for sure. But this is emphasized in his post-resurrection appearances, his vanishing and his appearing. Now, let's, let's do pause for a moment and, and look at some doctrine, okay? Uh, because this is, this is still happening. There's nothing new under the sun. The attacks on the truth of Christ's person are still with us today. If you ever get a knock on the door from the Jehovah's Witness, <clears throat> they're going to spout Arianism to you. And they're going to they're gonna deny the reality of Christ's person, saying that He's less than divine. That's, that's kind of where the Arianism heresy goes. And all the heresies about Christ's person, it's either towards denying His divinity or denying His humanity. So as you learn these heresies, they've all got their historical context and their funny names and their you know, centuries in which they happen. And these are good things for you to learn. But don't get bogged down in the details too much. Remember this. He is all man and all God. Two natures in one person. If you ever hear anything that doesn't quite go with that, then you know, let that little question mark go up in your brain and don't let it sink in there until you understand it better. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith came to us in 1646 and the definition of, definition of Chalcedon came to us in 451. Now, why do I give you those dates? Well, how many years is that? It's over a thousand years, isn't it? It's almost 1,200 years. And this reality of who Jesus Christ is in His person has stood. God has established this great dogma of our faith. Let us not be moved from it. In 451, and it's another great, be a great movie, if we could see Athanasius taking on uh, the Arian, wouldn't that be great? Because, you know, he was outmatched, if you will, by number and by... uh, preeminence from the others and ultimately won the day by referencing the Word of God over and over again. The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. Now I'm going to read the whole thing to you so it can be a little tedious, but please listen carefully and consider how much battling, intellectual battling went into these words 
from this council. Note first at the beginning and at the end, they revere the Holy Fathers, but at the end, they talk about the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him. So the foundation for their teaching is both church history and the Word of God. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here it comes. At once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. So, complete in Godhead. Everything true about the Godhead is true about Jesus Christ. Complete in manhood. Everything true about humanity is true about Jesus Christ. The unseen and the seen save sin. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards His Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards His manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. Now hear this description of these two natures in this one person. Without confusion, there's no confusion between the two natures in this one person. Without change, there's no change in the divine or the human nature of Christ in His person. Without division, they are united together in His one person. And without separation, they can't be taken apart. They won't be. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So in the first century or so, they were just trying not to get killed. The church was on the run. And once things settled in and the gospel expanded and the kingdom of God got its roots into the culture, the heresies started to proliferate. The attacks on who Jesus Christ really is, began to proliferate. Now, 1,200 years later, 1,200 years later, listen to the Westminster Confession. And you'll see, I think they may have read the definition of Chalcedon. <laughs> listen to this. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God? and very man, 
yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so, knowing and believing the truth about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is a very important part of our sanctification and our growth in Christ-likeness. The Arians, the Ebionites are another uh, group of those who really emphasize in their heresy that Jesus was not fully God. They overemphasize his humanity and they de-emphasize or deny his divinity. And modern, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, expect to hear this nonsense from them. And it, it's, why, it's why their salvation is threatened. Because, because the nature of who Christ is in his person is critical to what he was able to accomplish on the cross as both God and man. We've talked about this, just one simple example. No man without divine power assisting him could have suffered all of God's wrath upon the cross. So he had to be divine. But God alone on the cross couldn't suffer in the place of men. And it couldn't be a pretend man or the appearance of a man. A shell of some sort. Like the docetists teach. He had to be all man and all God on the cross for you and me to be saved. The docetists, they teach that he was not fully man. So that there was, this was an apparition, it was a shell of some sort, or maybe some celestial substance that came down and made up his body, but he wasn't really a man. <clears throat> he on, had on the suit of a man, but he wasn't really a man. And this is an essential part of the heresy of Gnosticism, which believes that the physical is bad, the visible, physical material is evil, and only that which is invisible, immaterial, is good. So how could Jesus have a body? Right? Because that would mean he was bad. This is evil teaching in both sides of the spectrum because they're telling lies about Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever thought in your life, I've been thinking too much about Christ's divinity lately. I need to think more and meditate more on his humanity. Has that ever crossed your mind in your prayers, in your worship, or, or vice versa? Well, that's good. That's good because we're always worshiping him for all of who he is, but in his humanity and in his divinity, we do see two natures. And this impacts our worship of God, Christ. Now, <clears throat> I want us to think on the incarnation and resurrection tandem, okay? Did anything happen to Jesus in his birth that demonstrated that he came in the flesh? Well, yeah. I mean, see, go ahead. Born of a virgin. He was actually, he passed through the birthing canal. He sure did. Now the Roman Catholics will have got this nonsense of the eternal virginity of Mary and that he like uh, passed through her womb and she never even gave birth. Like that's what they teach. Yeah. yeah, it's really crazy. But he did. He was born of a virgin. He passed through her birth canal. Well, guess what else? He nursed, right? So he ate as a baby. There he is, come in the flesh. Well, what else happened to him? He was circumcised. You don't circumcise the spirit, I don't think. 
So there's all these things throughout his whole life that are just easy to overlook where he's demonstrating to us that he is fully human. But also throughout his life, he's demonstrating to us in so many ways that he's fully God in the the things that he taught and the things that he did. The things that he taught and that he did. Now, I hope that you'll take it to heart that an inaccurate view of Christ's person, can you think about how that would confuse you? And how life's questions can be confused? Because so often we have to go back to who Christ is. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, right? There's a lot in that phrase. The real Jesus. The true Jesus. The genuine Jesus. It'll stunt our sanctification. It can even threaten salvation, as we've discussed. In John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, we're told, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's very clear the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John also teaches us in 1 John chapter 4 the importance of his full humanity, even defining Antichrist in terms of this idea. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So, the spirit of Antichrist is defined first as an attack on the, the person of Christ, who he is. Denying his humanity, spirit of Antichrist. I think it would be safe to say denying his divinity, spirit of Antichrist. So, some questions. Are you being made more like Christ? And in light of hearing the sermon, what does that mean to you? Right? Do you see how important it is to see Christ as fully human? Because you and I will never be fully divine. Ever. The Mormons will try to talk you into that one. You and I will never be fully divine. But praise be to God, we can be fully human. We can be restored human beings. We can be like Christ in that regard. We can be perfect humans. We will be perfect humans someday. And he is changing us now to be more and more like him in that regard. So you can see how sanctification can be ruined by a false view of Christ's person. I mean, think if you actually believe that he never was really human. What does that mean to be made like him then? That's really, it's really way off base. There's, the sanctification is lost in that worldview. The theologians talk about the communicable attributes. Okay? Well, there's no such thing of, as communicable attributes if Jesus did not become a man. They're communicable to us because Jesus shares them with us. So our sanctification elements are made up of these communicable attributes, these things about Jesus Christ, what it means to be human. He communicates these things to us by His Word and by His Spirit. When we eat the bread, when we drink the wine, praise be to God, He's feasting with us and we are being changed. 
So, do you meditate on the wonder of Christ? Do you think about the wonder of Christ at once complete in his Godhead and complete in his manhood? You know, John Owen wrote that great book, Communion with God. I commend it to you again. In which he goes through the scriptures and opens up to us the fellowship, the communion that we have with Father. The communion that we have with the Son. And the communion that we have with the Holy Spirit. And the communion that we have with the Son. The worship, the praise, the obedience. All of it depends upon who he is in his person. Next. When you consider Christ's person resurrected, his full humanity brought back to life, how does this shape your understanding of victory? I said it earlier, his kingdom touches everything his humanity and is empowered by His divinity. So, things seen and unseen, material and spiritual, are being reconciled to God in Christ. The comprehensive view of who Christ is leads us inevitably to the comprehensive view of what it means for him to be prophet, priest, and king in this kingdom that he is advancing, the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of God. And so all of these things, these truths are tied together. And if we miss it on who Christ is, That first domino, if you will, everything else unravels. Our view of ethics, have you ever considered how who Christ is in his person impacts biblical ethics? The classic example is the dualism of Gnosticism, the docetists who believe the physical is evil, what do they have to say about ethics in this world? Well, it varies, but for example, they might say it doesn't really matter how you live. I mean, your flesh is just terrible and go do terrible things with it. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Because on the inside, it's all that matters. Now, in addition, even as we get closer to what we would all consider orthodox Christianity, there's still this overemphasis in today's world and almost complete ignoring, on the other hand, the overemphasis on our heart, on the unseen person within, and to the detriment of talking about what is the fruit? So you can see, Christ was a whole man. Inside 
and outside devoted to his Father, as we should be as well, inside and out. And so if you don't care about the outside, you don't care about the physical, then you're leaning more to the Gnostic side. You see? And you might downplay Christ's divinity if you track that back far enough, maybe. He's just your buddy. That's all he is. But on the other hand, if we only see Christ's divinity, then we can get also similarly confused in our ethics. So watch out for that imbalance in your life. Um, This needs to be worked out more fully. Others have said a lot more about this and written about this. Praise be to God. He ate broiled fish and honeycomb. Be a fun meal to share sometime, I guess. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice to be your people with our own hands and feet. We are here together ourselves before you yourself. Worshiping you and praising you again, O God, through Christ. We rejoice in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That all of his humanity died. And all of his humanity was brought back to life. And that he is all God and all man. Inseparable forever. How we praise you. Fill us with understanding. Guide our thoughts with your truth, we pray, O God. And we ask that you would bless us to grow in faith and to see you for who you are during every step and every thought. In Jesus' name.